You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. February 14th, Valentine's Day, a time to express our love and friendship to one another, an excuse to give chocolate, flowers, heart-shaped candies, and corny greeting cards to loved ones, a day dedicated to reminding family and friends how much we truly value them. This past Thursday, however, was more than a day of love for some as it marked the one-year anniversary of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. While people all over the country spent the day celebrating connection, family and friends of the 17 people killed one year ago mourned the loss of the people whom they used to spoil on Valentine's Day. This year on Valentine's Day, my friend showed me a letter written by the mother of Alyssa, one of the students who lost her life a year ago. She reminisced about the days spent with Alyssa before her passing and wrote to Alyssa about all the moments they have since missed together. Her anger for what happened that day has led Lori to places she never envisioned she would go. In her letter to Alyssa, she wrote, there are things I do in your memory that I never thought I could or would ever do. I ran for the school board, I won. I screamed on national TV, words of rage directed at our president. I started a nonprofit called Make Our Schools Safe and there is a law named after you in New Jersey. Alyssa's Law. I'm sure that if I were to ask Lori how she envisions her future, it would be wildly different in many ways from how she envisioned it before Alyssa's death. Visions are ever-changing, just as life is. There is no use in being stuck in the way we used to live, and therefore there is no use in living with yesterday's visions if they no longer express where we want to go. After her daughter was killed, Lori had a choice. She could dwell on all the visions that no longer felt right to pursue, or she could let new visions grow from this loss. Lori opened her mind and heart to the possibility that her community had the power to spark change and opened her eyes to the fact that the pain of losing children to gun violence is far too common across this country. As a community, the students of Stoneman Douglas and the families of the students who were killed have let new visions form in the face of adversity. There is so much hurting in this world right now, and amidst a hardship, they have been called to let their pain push them to speak out for change. While positive outcomes were not guaranteed, they spoke out because they knew someone had to. The students spoke out for all their friends who were taken away from them too soon, and they demanded that their voices be heard. They continue to speak out because tragedies such as these take place in communities of color, and they speak out because it should not have taken a shooting happening in a predominantly white school for people to start listening. The community of Stoneman Douglas has found their calling because they felt outrage that could not be settled without change, real change. The headlines keep rolling in, and we can see that change can't come soon enough. Since the shooting in Parkland one year ago, 1,200 children have been killed by gunfire in the U.S. Even this past Friday, five men were killed in a, in a mass shooting at a manufacturing plant in Illinois. We, as a community, have the power to change more than any one of us does alone. 
We can lend our voices to support sensible gun restrictions. Two laws, one to close the background check loopholes and one to raise the age to purchase some firearms will be, com will be considered in the Minnesota legislature this session. The youth of this church ask you to call your representatives and make your opinions heard. In addition to using our voices, our community offers our time, which is apparent in each service project we take on as a church. Sure, one person could build a house alone, but our church partners with Habitat for Humanity because more hands on deck means more efficient work. With every volunteer that puts time and love into the process, the building of a house turns into the building of a home for a family who needs that shelter and security. When we host families experiencing homelessness for a few weeks, we are doing more than giving them sanctuary. We are forming connections with members of our community and offering hospitality. As Margaret J. Wheatley once said, there is no power for change greater than a community discovering what it cares about. Let us experience fury in the way things are that is so strong that we are no longer able to sit still and watch. Let us create visions for the future of this community that will make us proud of our actions. Let us together find purpose in the path we will follow. Come, let us worship together. So I want to start with the story. I have a friend who is uh, 33 years plus sober, and my friend keeps in his pocket, yes, that is a huge accomplishment every day, every day, and he keeps in his pocket this coin. He actually gave it to me to hold up here. I got, I teared up this morning when he gave this to me just to hold. Um, it's a touchstone for him. It's a reminder of purpose, a call to continue the work day after day of staying sober, attending meetings, connecting with your higher power, however you understand that, but to walk that right path. Maybe some of you in this room have a sobriety coin. It's 24 hours or a day or a week or a month or a year or a number of years. Whether it's a coin or not, my guess is that all of us in this space, we keep something in our pocket to help us walk the right path. We keep a quote in our head or our heart or a coin in our pocket, something that calls us back to the people we want to be in this world, to help us orient in this maddening world. So for me, I've been carrying those two quotes, those two quotes I shared at the beginning of the service, the one from Oscar Romero and Yvette Flunder. I've been carrying them with me now for a few months, letting them work on me and work in me. Let me tell you who these people are, and you'll understand why these quotes matter. Oscar Romero was the Archbishop of San Salvador, El Salvador, nearly 40 years ago. He was Archbishop as the revolutionary government junta of El Salvador came to power in 1979, and with that power came tremendous violations of human rights, abuse, murder, torture of citizens by paramilitary right-wing groups and the government. Many of those groups had covert military support and training from the United States. All of this ultimately led to a decade-long civil war in El Salvador. In his preaching and his week weekly radio addresses, Romero would list, he would say out loud, it was one of the only ways that common people could get real information. He would list the disappearances, the tortures, the murders, and more of what was happening. He advocated for human dignity for those most vulnerable to the repression. In March of 1980, Romero delivered a sermon in which he called on the Salvadoran soldiers to end the human rights violation and violence. He said, no soldier is obliged to obey an order that is contrary to the will of God. The next day, Oscar Romero 
took an assassin's bullet in the chest. At the end of the service, he was about to take mass, and he died on the altar of this church. He died in so many ways, a true martyr, a friend of the people, a voice for the voiceless, loved by the common people of El Salvador in the face of this US-backed violence. In fact, just a month before his death, he wrote to President Jimmy Carter and he said to him, warning him that this increased military presence and aid would undoubtedly sharpen the injustice and the political repression in El Salvador. And in so many ways today, when we read the news and see these pictures of, of immigrants and these caravans of people coming, coming north to the border, we are seeing the awful fruit of this history in the form of asylum seekers, men and women and transgender people who are leaving the violence and corruption of Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, shaped by US presence decades ago and still to this day. I've been holding this quote in my pocket because Oscar Romero understood that his faith and the church were meant to be on the side of the oppressed, to give them voice and agency and dignity, to critique those who abused power and authority, and the purpose of the church was to build the kingdom of love, the kingdom of God here on earth for those who suffered. In his words again, a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel, that's just the good news, that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word from the Spirit, a word from a wise teacher or scripture that doesn't get under your skin, a word that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? In other words, what kind of gospel only offers thoughts and prayers in the face of unrelenting gun violence? What kind of gospel turns away in the face of a corporate giant like Amazon paying zero dollars in federal taxes? What kind of gospel is that? Though I'm not a Catholic, like Oscar Romero was, I hold tightly to his words as I think about Unitarian Universalism and our faith, and the fact that if this faith isn't unsettling you, isn't getting under your skin in some way, isn't causing you to act in new ways in the world, to be a new creation of justice and love, then what in the world are we doing here? I'm loving these youth. I'm loving you all. I am loving, and the other quote I hold in my pocket are the words from Bishop Yvette Flunder, pastor of City of Refuge, United Church of Christ, this radically inclusive GBLTQ and questioning friendly community that takes seriously Jesus' commitment to social justice. Her words, as a reminder, were these, cynicism is increased knowledge without an increased sense of purpose. Man, I've been holding on to those words holding on to those words tight for my own life. I mean, when I look around, when we look around, it is hard not to be cynical, right? You read the news, you read the headlines, you know climate change, you know we have the narrowest of narrow windows to make a dent in the worst of what is to come. It's already coming, but the worst, we have a minute to respond. We read about racial disparities in Minnesota and the country. We see pictures of immigrants tear gassed and detained and deported. We hear the statistics about gun violence one more time. Again, it's all knowledge 
knowledge, knowledge. But what does it do to our soul when there is so much knowledge and no corresponding increase in the sense of purpose for our lives? What happens to our integrity when our knowing is off the charts, but our purpose remains flat? What kind of life is that, friends? And I'm wrestling with these questions, too. I'm not saying I have these answered. What will we tell the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of this world when they look back on this moment? Let me share a story with you, one some of you may know and, in fact, may have been shared from this pulpit uh, in the recent, recent past. Come back with me 80 years to May of 1939. There are about uh, 900, mostly German Jews, aboard a ship called the St. Louis. They are fleeing the violence and the danger of the Nazis. The St. Louis has crossed the ocean with the intention of landing in Cuba, and it's just offshore. But last-minute changes in the documents required for passengers to actually enter Cuba, and this rising tide of anti-Semitism means that only a few people have the right documents and can get off the ship. The captain approaches the coast of Miami, and passengers and crew from the ship, they can see the lights of the city. And there are appeals and calls and letters sent to President Roosevelt and others asking for assistance, asking to land. Newspapers across the United States cover the story. They're out there for a couple of weeks on the water, just offshore, and reactions and opinions in the papers vary. One letter in a writer to the editor says, until the United States proves that we can handle our own political affairs intelligently, the proper thing for us to do is to stay in our own backyard, lock the gate, and take care of our own troubles. Let Europe take care of their own destitute. But another letter this letter from an 11-year-old girl written to Eleanor Roosevelt, Roosevelt says this, Mother of our country, I am so sad the Jewish people have to suffer so. Please let them land in America. It hurts me so that I would give them my little bed if it was the last thing I had because I am an American and let us Americans not send them back to that slaughterhouse. We have three rooms we do not use. My mother would be glad to let someone stay in them. After several weeks at sea and a refusal from the United States and Cuba to let them land, the ship sails back to Europe. While some of the Jews on board find safety in the United Kingdom and in France and in Belgium and the Netherlands, hundreds do not, and they ultimately perish at the hands of the Nazis. The questions, the questions then, now, always as a person of faith are this. What ships are just off of the shore? How is our faith working on us and in us so that we can see and respond to those in need? Those perhaps in a life or death situation just on the edge of our awareness. How do we move past knowledge? Yep, I know there's a ship full of refugees out there. They're in trouble. Yep. The border wall conversation, the so-called national emergency, our immigration policies are racist to their core, built on a history of anti-blackness and anti-brown skin people. Yep, immigrant families are scared and traumatized as they flee violence and poverty. Yep, 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 we know. But how do we move beyond knowing to acting with increased purpose? 
And I want to share with you one thing. There are many, but one thing that feels like this increased sense of purpose that is emerging here, this sense of purpose that we'll need your help with. We will need your help with as this moves forward. You may know that many of those seeking asylum from Honduras and El Salvador and Nicaragua are transgender people or gender non-conforming people who face terrible violence in their home countries and have no legal protection. They are an extremely vulnerable population, as many trans folks are in the United States. What I didn't know is that many transgender asylum seekers are detained in Cibola County Correctional Center. This is a federally operated private prison in New Mexico. And it's a detention center specifically for transgender asylum seekers. There have been numerous reports from Cibola of prison guards harassing trans asylum seekers, putting them in solitary confinement, and denying them their hormonal medicine. According to a news story I came across, Cibola came under public scrutiny last year following the death of Roxana Hernandez Rodriguez, a transgender asylum seeker detained who died in ICE custody there last May. This is traumatizing. Imagine you're, you've been in horrific conditions. You flee those conditions with a group of people. So you have safety with the group of people you're with. You actually have a legal asylum case and are detained during all of that asylum proceedings, which can take years. You're detained. You're treated like an animal for all of that time unless someone sponsors you and is willing to host you, in which case you can be released from detention. That's the only way. And that's what a number of organizations, including the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, Showing Up for Racial Justice, and members of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee are working to do for transgender asylum seekers and others by opening doors and serving as sponsors. In faith communities, it's a congregational sponsorship model where an individual congregant or couple offers to be the sponsor, the host, where the asylum seeker will live, but then the whole congregation wraps around and provides support and resources because so much support is needed, legal support, financial support, medical support, transportation support, language support, so much more. Since early January, I've been meeting with several church couples who have adult transgender or gender nonconforming children, and they have been talking about the possibility of sponsoring an asylum seeker. It has been, it has been holy, holy, holy to witness the discernment of these two couples, to watch their spirit move in them, to watch the sense of, well, we do have some rooms in our house that aren't, in fact, we have a couple rooms in our house that aren't being used. And we know something about transgender people and issues, and we think that we could do this. And, and actually, if we had the whole support of the church, we know that we could do this. We know we could sponsor an asylum seeker. That's the conversation we've been having, and now we're at a place where we're looking at having this happen at the end of March, so essentially a, a month and a half from right now. So I want to talk about an increased sense of purpose. As we move forward with sponsoring an asylum seeker, we 
have to remember that this isn't just an act of like kindness, though it is that. It's not just about helping someone. This is about solidarity. This is about being in relationship, deep relationship with someone who aspires to live a different and better life here and helping to make that happen. My colleague, Reverend Elizabeth Nguyen, whose father and grandparents were refugees from Vietnam, they were sponsored by a family in Milwaukee in 1975. She says this, the call to sponsor asylum seekers is fundamentally a call for people to live their values around care and hospitality. She asks, what would you want if you were fleeing violence and you were a resilient, powerful person fighting for your life and you were in ICE jail and the thing that would get you out is someone saying, I've got your back for a little while. Sponsoring an asylum seeker is one more concrete way, among many, to push back against the hateful rhetoric and actions of our time. You'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. Look for an article in our online newsletter this week. There will be more information. To make this happen, we will really need support from the entire congregation. And I imagine as I share this, you're curious and you have questions about this and want to know more right now and want to sign up right now. And I promise you we will share more and create those vehicles for your involvement. And I really understand that, that yearning in you. Um, those questions will be answered in time. But I want to come back to this central question that has been at the heart of this discernment with these couples. If our faith doesn't compel us to take such emotional, spiritual risks, such financial risks in service of justice and love, then really, at the end of the day, what kind of faith is this? The goal of the church is to liberate us from narrow-mindedness, from fear and tight-holding, to free us from old ways of being, to release us from the cynicism that comes from too much knowledge and no sense of purpose. The reason for our being as a faith community is so that the hurting, the longing, the depressed, the confused, and that is all of us at some point in time, let's be honest, can find love and hope and forgiveness and encouragement in this space. We are here to dismantle white supremacy culture, to push back against a narrative that says we must fear or control or imprison or detain black and brown bodies. That is our sacred purpose. Church, you got it in you for one more story? You got, it, you got it in you for one more story? Okay. Just trying to read, read where you're at. You're with me. I'm thinking you're with me. So doctor and author Rachel Naomi Remen shares a story that I think captures this sense of purpose, how we live into our purpose. She shares a story that captures that perfectly. She shares this, when the Concorde jet first began to fly between the United States and Europe at 1,350 miles an hour, you could cross the Atlantic in less than four hours. Like, pew, pew. On one of those early flights, the media was invited into the cockpit onto the flight to kind of experience this and write about it and what an amazing thing it was. The reporter was surprised to see that no human beings were um, actually keeping the plane on course. There were two computers that fed course readings and corrections back and forth to each other, clicking and buzzing, adjusting all the time. I imagine like, you're off course, adjusting, adjusting, like, beep, 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 beep. off course again, oh, adjusting, off course, ah, adjusting. <laughs> Turning to the tour guide, the reporter said, what percentage of the time is the plane actually off course? 
And, and the, he said about 99% of the time, <laughs> the plane's off course. And we'll land in Paris at 9.03 p.m., says the journalist, the reporter. Yes, sir, plus or minus, you know, a minute or two. Rachel Naomi Remen says, this story was told to me, and I have no idea of whether or not it's true, but it certainly raises an interesting thought. Might it be possible to focus on the purpose we wish to serve in the same way that the Concorde focused on its destination and navigated a trajectory? In other words, serving anything worthwhile is a commitment to a direction over time It may require us to relinquish many moment-to-moment attachments, to let go of pride, to let go of approval, to let go of a sense of, oh, we're going to do this because we know we'll be successful, to let go of perfectionism, to let go of even being recognized for what we're doing as we're on way to destination. This is true for us, whether we are parents or researchers or educators or artists or lawyers or restaurant servers or warehouse workers. It's true for us as congregants. The bearing of this church is racial justice, ending white supremacy culture that is harming us and killing the planet. That's our bearing. We will make mistakes in our effort. We will get off course. Beep, 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 beep. Off course, correcting, off course, correcting. We'll probably get a little snippy with each other at times. Right? We'll get kind of, stop telling me we're off course. Don't, do, but the bearing of this church and actually, if we did it in funny voices like that and made like R2-D2 noises, we could probably handle it better when we were off course with one another instead of some sideways Minnesota passive-aggressive craziness. So let's just R2-D2 <laughs> snippy with each other when we're off course. We will get off course. Of course we will, again and again and again. But the bearing of this church is increased purpose in the spiritually grounded racial justice work, knowing that in this building, knowing that our homes, knowing that our financial resources, this whole space here, our lives can be used in service to justice, can be used in service to healing, can be used in service to solidarity, to the creation of a beloved community. This work, as Rachel Naomi Remen says, is less a work of the ego than a choice of the soul. Our souls want something life-giving and sustaining. Our souls want a gospel, a religious message that challenges us and upends too much knowledge and cynicism. Our souls yearn to create beloved community. My soul, your soul, our soul desires to be a purpose driven people. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.